Hey, you guys, welcome back for a week three of our series in the life of David. It is, uh, well, we're at the point in one of the epic stories of David. In fact, it's the classic underdog story. In fact, it's still the one that we all reference. It's the story of David and, I'm going to bet you can finish that sentence, Goliath. Right, And it is one of those stories, because all underdog stories, they just something about them that we love as people. It's awesome seeing the little guy somehow get ahead, come out victorious. I think partly because most of us feel like in life, in the grand scheme of things, we're all a little bit of the underdogs. In fact, I'll tell you a quick underdog story. This is from my own life, my greatest underdog moment. I'm giving away the ending already. But my senior year in high school, I was playing soccer for this little school that I was a part of. And I was a very solidly mediocre player, but it was a little school, so it was totally okay. But we had an amazing coach that year, like easily the best coach I ever had in my, my 12 years of playing soccer. And, uh, and we were a pretty good team as a result of that. And one game we were winning 6-0. to zero. And uh, in soccer, that's, that's an obscenely high score. Like there's no worries at this point. It's an easy game. Uh, nobody was sweating it. We were only like playing half you know, power at this point in time. And our goalie was an incredible athlete in general and loved playing the field when he could get out of the goal, and that didn't happen very often. So at 6-0, he starts begging the coach to get him out onto the field, and the coach is like, well, who wants to play goalie because we don't have a backup goalie? And I decided, you know, what the heck? 6-0, my senior year, I've never played goalie in my life. Coach put me in, I'll play goalie. And he looked at me and said, are you sure? And I said, of course I'm sure. No big deal. So he puts me in the goal, and I realize I have absolutely no idea how to be a goalie. Never wanted to play goalie. It's actually rather terrifying to have the ball kicked at you at high speeds. But I figure our defense is great. They haven't been getting any shots on goal. It'll be fine. Problem is, our defense thought it was really funny that I was in the goal. And so they start letting balls through and shots through. And 15 minutes into me being goalie, it is now 4-6. to six. That's right, four goals in 15 minutes. It had been scoreless before that in our favor. They're just scoring left and right, and I'm not even going to tell you, it was just sad. But one moment in this game, the ball is coming near our goal again, and it looks like they're going to be taking another shot, and the ball gets a little loose, and one of my buddies who's playing defense dives towards that ball. In fact, he actually dives on top of that ball, and instead of doing it in normal soccer fashion, feet first, he actually dives head first, hands first, dives on the ball, picks it up, super obvious, rolls over, has the ball in his hands. The ref calls it, of course. It's a foul. Drops on the ground, turns around, and looks at me and just smiles like that Cheshire cat smile of like, what are you going to do about this? It's now a penalty kick, which in soccer means it's one-on-one. -on -one. It's one kicker, one goalie, mano y mano. They won't let you sub out the goalie, which was too bad because I thought that would be a great idea. So I'm in the goal. There's this kicker who's like 15 feet away from me, whatever it is. I'm panicking. I'm like, what in the world am I supposed to do? Our normal goalie, Mike's behind me telling me, like, hey, do this. Bend your knees. Get ready for this. You know, watch his hips and his knees. That's going to tell you which way he's going to kick it, none of which made any sense to me. I'm like, I have no idea where this guy's going to kick the ball. But I'm watching. I'm waiting. In my mind, I decide I'm just going to dive. Like, I'm just going to pick a direction and dive. I have no idea how to get to the other end of this goal fast enough. This guy's going to blast it. I'm just going to dive. And so I'm watching him. He's running up to that ball, and I'm watching his hips. I'm watching his knees. I have no clue what he's about to do. I'm, like, getting ready to dive. And then I just decide I'm just going to wait and see what happens first. Maybe I can have really fast reflexes. And he blasts that ball, and I'm all ready to kind of, like, do I don't know what. And in, like, a blink of an eye, I notice that that ball is, like, right in my face. And I just react, put my hands up to protect my face because I don't want my face to get smacked block the ball as it hits my forearms and I might have even squealed a little bit out of sheer shock and, and fear I'm like ah and the ball hits me bounces right back onto the ground 
bounces right back to the kicker. There's still nobody else in the penalty box, and he comes up for a second kick, and in my mind, I'm thinking, like, oh, I'm dead. And he kicks the ball as hard as he can, and he overkicks it way over the goal. And I blocked a penalty kick who had no idea how to be a goalie, and this created a chant from our side of the, well, our side of the field, which was we can block any shot with Big Johnson, which I won't reference for those you weren't there, but 90s, that was a t-shirt. You shouldn't look it up. Um, but this was like, oh, I couldn't believe it. I was absolutely thrilled. I'm like, how did this just happen? I did nothing other than act frightened. But sometimes in those moments, you know, you just get really lucky. Well, this is David. We love this kind of underdog. We love living an underdog story where we overcame some credible, crazy odds. But if you remember last week, David, he's just the shepherd kid. He's the eighth son of Jesse. He's got all his older brothers, but God has chosen him, the youngest, and anointed him to be the next king. But it's kind of a secret still. Like Samuel didn't broadcast it because Samuel said, if we start telling everybody Saul, who is king, is going to come and he's going to kill me, he's going to kill probably my family, he's going to wipe out David, right? That, that's what kings do. They're not thrilled when God's like, no, we're going to have a new king. They don't want to step down from that role. So it's kind of on the hush-hush, but but David's been anointed, and David has been filled with the Holy Spirit. He walked away from that moment, a changed young man. God's Spirit came on him, came into his heart, came into his mind. His presence settled upon David, and David has been changed. But what's really interesting in this moment, okay, it's cool. David's been anointed in front of the village. You know, he's going to be the next king. But from the standpoint of appearances, he goes right back to being a shepherd. Dad sends him back out to the flock. Right? He's been chosen to be king, but you know what? He's still got this normal work to do. His, he's not being ushered into the palace. Saul's still the king. He doesn't know. Nobody else really knows. So we have this interesting picture of David who has been changed and chosen by God. But all of his life, all of his responsibilities remain the same in that moment. Nothing that day radically changes. Now, if you read the story of David, you see that not long after this, there's some people that come and recruit him because Saul has got this evil spirit that lingers on him. That could mean evil mood and mindset. Maybe he's depressed, angry. He's a little bit bipolar at this point. Not sure, but God's spirit has left Saul because Saul keeps rejecting God. God's rejecting him now. And now, now David has been chosen, but they need somebody who can play music to kind of calm Saul down because they know music's powerful when it comes to affecting moods and mindsets. And, and they don't have radio and they don't have TV and they don't even have Pandora, right? Or they don't have anything. So they got to find a guy who can play and sing. And somebody's heard David singing to the sheep, literally recruits him to play in the palace for Saul to help calm, calm him down. And it says that David goes back and forth between the palace playing music and to watching the sheep. So he's not lining up to be king. He's not lining up to do anything great or stupendous, maybe. He's playing his music. He's singing. He's watching the sheep. Meanwhile, war breaks out between Israel and one of their neighbors, uh, the Philistines. Philistines live down in the coastal lands. Uh, they're, they're near the Mediterranean Sea. It's kind of down in the plains, up in the hills, up in the mountains. That's where Israel is. That's where their stronghold is. And, and as the Philistine army kind of marches up to, to attack them, King Saul and his army marches down. They meet in this valley. And they both take a position on the kind of the hills of the valley. And there's this little valley in between them. And they take a position up here on these sides. And nobody, nobody wants to march their army down into the bottom of the valley to get the other group. Because you don't want to be downhill in this kind of a battle. When it comes to hand-to-hand -hand fighting, and really probably any kind of fighting, you know that the, the group that's up at the top has the advantages. For one, if you're going to come get them, you've got to run uphill. And that's really hard. Two, if they decide to run down at you, they've got all the force and momentum. Plus, they can roll rocks and logs at you, all kinds of fun stuff when they've got gravity working for them. So there's this, this stalemate that happens. In fact, both armies take to this thing called posturing 
where they just begin to form a battle lines. They're banging their swords on their shields. They're yelling. They're screaming. They're all polishing their armor so they look bright and shiny. They've got really tall helms, you know, that make them look like they're all bigger than they actually are, bulky capes maybe, right? But they're looking as organized, as strong, as powerful. They're trying to intimidate each other and hoping that the other side's going to back down because the reality is while war might sound like, oh, it's something we got to do and it's something significant, when you get there face-to-face -face in those lines, it's a frightening, crazy thing. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it, well, it's got to be more than scary. And they knew that when you got into hand-to-hand -hand combat, not only would you might have to kill somebody in hand-to-hand, -hand, but all you have to do is be wounded in a battle, and you can die later from infection and get stabbed, and a piece of your clothing gets into one of your wounds, and it festers. Boom, pretty soon you got your toxic, man, you're dead. And it's not a pleasant death, and these guys know this. They've seen it, and so no one's in a rush to run down this hill and just start a battle and get in a big fight. There's always a few people, but not very many. And so these armies are lined up, yelling and screaming, posturing, trying to get the other side to back down, tell them it's not worth the fight, hoping they'll go home. Meanwhile, the Philistine side has this awesome solution. They bring out their biggest guy. Their biggest guy is this guy. You've heard of him. His name is Goliath, and he is huge. In fact, I'm going to ask uh, for my special guest to come up here real quickly to help demonstrate just how big this guy is. They bring out this guy, Goliath, and he is just about as big as Greg, only when Greg's up here. So David is probably close to about my height, five foot nine and a quarter, a very tall, strapping young man. But over here is Goliath, and Goliath is actually probably, if Greg were to raise his hand and you could actually see it, it'd be all the way up past the ceiling. He's nine feet, four inches tall, ridiculously huge. This guy walks out in full armor. Okay, wait, stay right there for a minute. I got to read a description. Here's what it says. It says, the Philistines had a champion fighter from Gath named Goliath. He was about nine feet, four inches tall. He came out of the Philistine camp with a bronze helmet on his head and a coat of bronze armor that weighed about 125 pounds. He wore bronze protectors on his legs, and he had a bronze spear on his back. The wooden part of his larger spear was like a weaver's rod, and its blade weighed about 15 pounds. The officer who carried his shield walked in front of him. So here comes this guy, decked out in bronze armor that weighs, well, not quite as much as I do, but pretty darn close. A ton of it, weapons all over him. He's like a walking tank. He's massive. He's huge. He is compared to the, everybody in the Israelite camp. Literally a giant, right? He's, he is impressive and intimidating, to say the least. And then, to make matters worse, you're almost done. He, be, he begins to bellow this out. He says, today I stand and dare the army of Israel. Send one of your men to fight me. When Saul and the Israelites heard the Philistines' words, they were, to put it mildly, very scared. He stands there and defies. And everybody's down here looking at this guy going like, yeah, so we just need one guy to fight him. We just need one person to fight this guy. And he volunteers. Everybody's going, no, I think, uh, I think Joe does. Shamil over here, he wants to do it, right? But nobody wants to do it. All right, give Greg a hand. Thank you, buddy. That's Goliath right there. He's massive, massive, huge guy, right? Nobody wants to fight him. Everybody's terrified. But if you remember this about Saul, the king, Remember when he was chosen to be king, part of what they noticed about him is that he was a head and shoulders taller of everybody else, which means he's the biggest guy in their army. And you kind of think of like, hey, you're going to match up somebody to fight their biggest guy. It's going to be our biggest guy. But Saul's not stepping out there either. So you've got this standoff happening where this giant walks out a little closer to their army, 
every day, twice a day, and bellows this challenge, I dare you. He's challenging everything about them. He's challenging them as a nation, as an army. He's challenging them just as men, their dignity. Like, where are you? I thought you guys were fighters. I thought this was an army. I thought you guys were proud, right? I thought you guys had something that, that was worth fighting for, right? Why are y'all sitting over there just looking at me? Like, get over here, you big wimps. Whatever names, I'm sure he could get pretty vulgar, right? Challenging these guys, but they're staring at this enemy, and this enemy lacks weaknesses. I mean, they're looking at him like, okay, if we were to fight him, what would we do? I don't know. He's covered in armor. How do you even begin to fight somebody who is covered in armor and wielding these weapons? I mean, his spear, how far does that thing reach? He's got a 15-pound head on the end of it. Try going home. Or, well, you are at home, maybe. Go into your garage and pull out an axe or a maul and just try hold it out with one hand and see how long you can do that. This guy's got a head on it, probably heavier than that, at the end of a six-foot, eight-foot, maybe, spear shaft. I mean, this guy is going to be a force to be reckoned with, to say the least. But this is the amazing thing. We know this story because here's this literal champion, this literal hero, this literal fighter and soldier. But if we just take a look at what really is going on here, he's not using any of those weapons right now. right? He's not pulling out his, his spear. He's not throwing at anybody. Right? right now, he's just using the power of his words because Goliath himself is also posturing. And he is using weapons of shame and intimidation and discouragement and provocation to challenge these guys to do something, to send one person out in one-to-one combat, just to say, look, we can solve this whole thing right here, right now. Because why? Because he doesn't think he can be defeated. And then they have to kill one guy, and then they get to win the whole battle. They get to take all the, all the victory with just one challenge. But he knows that they just have to demoralize the enemy. They just have to intimidate them and cow them that maybe they will back down whenever that day comes where they decide to go forward where that whole army is just going to melt away in fear because they have been beaten down again and again and again every single day. And so shame, intimidation, discouragement, provocation. Now, this is where this gets interesting because part of why we love stories about giants and why we love stories of underdogs is we all kind of understand and feel that, that challenge in our own lives, that there tends to be some kind of a giant, some kind of challenger in our lives that we all want to be able to step up to and defeat sometimes. That we all feel the weight of these kind of very words, honestly, in our life. That there's somebody or something that speaks words of shame, intimidation, discouragement, and provocation to us. Sometimes we got voices that are not coming from external, but inside of us, from our own minds, our own hearts, our own past, that say, you know, you're never going to be good enough, or you always do this, you always do that, or you always fail, right? You're never going to be able to be successful. You're never going to accomplish this thing, this feat, whatever it might be, or there's other that just kind of provoke us into acting or reacting, right? If you've ever had a older brother or sister like they were really good at provoking you to get you into trouble or maybe it was even a younger brother or sister right but many of us had friends that were great provokers as well that could get us to do things like that was really dumb why to do that well because somebody provoked me right there's so often these very voices in our lives and if we look at what we have to overcome in our own time our own day our own life our own relationships so much of it is still these same exact weapons and challenges And I think we face it sometimes when it comes to our following after God and thinking and wanting to be closer to God and wanting to know God and wanting to grow in our faith. But we have these same voices that say, like, you can't do that. God doesn't want people like you. You're not good enough for God. You're not religious enough for God. You're not smart enough for God, right? You're not holy enough for God, right? Whatever it might be, you're not committed enough for God. You've got these problems. You've got this past. You've got this history. God doesn't want people like you. There's still sin in your life. There's still arrogance. You still want too many other things, whatever it might be. 
And I've, I've read this book a while ago. It's one of my favorite, favorite books. Uh, it's called God Smuggler. It's a true story. The guy's still alive, actually. Autobiographical. Let's call him Brother Andrew. Back during the Cold War days, he was smuggling Bibles in and out of the Iron Curtain and uh, into the Soviet Union and all those nations back there. And it was a miraculous stuff that he was doing because he would be driving books across the border and they'd have books just sitting on his lap as he's crossing these borders where they'd be searching cars and pulling stuff out and they just never could find the books. And all he would pray is God just blind their eyes so they can't see and God would do it. I mean, it was just again and again and again and again, he and his organization were traveling and doing these crazy things. But when he was young and he was just starting out, when he was just beginning to follow God and just begin to kind of put his life on that path and that track, he had this moment where he had this realization where he was always saying to God, God, I want to follow you, but in his case, he'd been in the military and he shot through the foot and he had this limp. He says, but I'm lame. I can't hardly walk. God, I want to follow you, but when the Nazis invaded Holland during the war, I was in the sixth grade and that's where my education ended. So I'm not very smart. I don't have this education. I don't have this pedigree in that regard. I want to follow you, but I don't have any resources. I'm from a poor family in a small little village, and I don't have a lot I can turn to or I can reach towards to get something done or to accomplish something. And he had this moment where he realized he was always telling God, I want to follow you, but I will obey you, but I want to grow closer to you, but there was all of these excuses that he was using and not remembering or realizing this is God I'm talking to. This is the God who can overcome all these kinds of weaknesses, that God, who doesn't see weaknesses, he sees simply opportunities for him to demonstrate his strength in our lives. And as we read the story, I hope that you will see and know and invite God into the challenges of your own, God, I want to follow you, but what your own giants or where your own voices of shame, intimidation, discouragement, and provocation come from, uh, that you invite God in, in the same way that we're about to see David step into this very same arena. In fact, this scenario with Goliath goes on for 40 days with the armies of Israel and the Philistines face-to-face, you know, just challenging each other, but no war breaking out. And then Jesse calls David. Jesse's his dad. He says, look, I've got three sons that are with Saul. They're in the army. It's been 40 days. I haven't heard anything from them. You know, maybe no, good, n- no news is good news, but I'd like some news. So he tells David, look, saddle up a donkey. I'm going to load you up with some bread, some cheese, and you're just going to be my little courier, and I'm going to send you to the front lines. It's about 10 miles away. Go to the front lines, find out the news, find out how your brothers are, and then just hurry right back and let me know what is going on. So David makes his way over. He delivers all this, this food to one of the officers, and he gets there right as the two armies come together to draw their battle lines and just try to intimidate each other and outwalks Goliath again on day 40 now with this challenge of defying the armies of Saul and challenging if there's a man brave enough to step out and meet him in, in single combat. David hears all this. Here's what's going on in, in verse 25. Uh, we, we pick this up where he is listening to the soldiers as they're talking. And they said, look at this man. He keeps coming out to challenge Israel. The king will give much money to whoever kills him. He will also let whoever kills him marry his daughter. And his father's family will not have to pay taxes in Israel. And David asked the men who stood near him, what will be done to reward the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the shame from Israel? Who does this uncircumcised Philistine think he is? Does he think he can speak against the armies of the living God? The Israelites told David, what would be done for the man who killed Goliath? So here's David just listening to this and going like, whoa, 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 wait, what? 
this has been happening repeatedly that this Philistine's coming out like whoa wait there's a there's a reward like this has been going on so long that there's a reward for this I mean he's looking at this giant and his attitude is who does this guy think he is everybody else in the army is going like he thinks he's Goliath he thinks he's a champion he thinks he's a killing machine he thinks that we're all a bunch of cannon fodder compared to him as who he thinks he is and David's going like what who is this guy he's defying the armies he says of the living God and you notice David doesn't say Saul's armies. That's what everybody else keeps referring to. That's what Goliath keeps calling it. Saul's army, the army of Saul, the servants of Saul. And David's going like, we're not Saul's servants. We're God's servants. This is God's army. This is his nation. This is his people. This is what God's doing right here and right now. And David's starting to get himself up into that place of like, you know what? I think this is my next challenge. But I love it. As he asks these questions about what's going to happen, David's brother steps in. David's oldest brother, Eliab, heard David talking with the soldiers. Now, remember Eliab, he's the firstborn. He's the one that when Samuel saw him, he's like, oh, he's tall, he's handsome, he looks like a leader. This could be the next king. And God's like, no, 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 I'm not looking at the appearance. I'm looking at the heart. And he was the first one that Samuel's like, never mind, not him, in front of the whole village, right? <laughs> well, Eliab is now listening to David. And it says that he was angry with David. And he asked David, why did you come here? Who's taking care of those few sheep of yours in the desert? This is the kind of role that only siblings can play, right? Bothered by a sibling just because they're asking questions. Here, David getting a little bit interested in what's going on, and he just steps in, angry at David. And I love this statement. Why did you come here? Who's taking care of those few sheep? You notice that? It's a few sheep. It's not a lot of sheep. It's not our big sheep, which is kind of a dig into David, like your job's not very important, but why aren't you there doing it? Which is funny, in a sense, because they're not really David's sheep. They're actually David's dad's sheep, which means they're actually also... <laughs> Eliab's sheep right that's they're his as well but look what he says he says I know you are proud and wicked at heart you came down here just to watch the battle <laughs> right here's his accusation like this is who you are you're arrogant you're a jerk you're proud you just wanted to see a bunch of carnage going on you just wanted to watch the battle you ditched your responsibilities with the sheep right all these assumptions and he doesn't say this is David's behavior he says this is David's heart Right, which is really interesting because right, when God looks at David, he says, I'm looking for the man after my own heart. And that's not Eliab. But how often are there people that speak into our lives that, that claim that they know what we're thinking? They know what we're feeling. They know what motivates us. Most of us aren't very good at understanding or predicting what is going on inside somebody's heart and somebody's mind. But siblings are really great at saying it out loud anyway, because I'm sure on more than one occasion, David earned this kind of rebuke. I mean, he's the youngest of eight sons. Can you imagine the competition for getting dad's attention? Imagine as David's going to share his role as a shepherd where his flock would get attacked and he would defend it. And it says that he kills a lion and he kills a bear that were attacking his sheep. I don't imagine that David did that and didn't talk about it. I have a feeling he drug that carcass back down to the house, knocked on the door and brought dad outside and said, Dad, look what I did. I killed this lion. I killed this bear. It was killing your sheep. I stepped up for you, Dad. I mean, it's kind of like when your cat brings you a bird or a rat and leaves it on the front porch. You know, it's just kind of like saying, I just want you to know that I'm here for you. This is what I'm doing to contribute to the family. Right? It's, it's this offering. I'm sure this is part of that competitiveness of this family. I mean, we're all trying to step up. When you're the last son, and you're the bottom of that pyramid, that totem pole of sons, I'm sure David's doing anything he can to get attention from dad and to show him, look, look what I'm doing. Look who I am. Well, David simply responds with, now what have I done? Which tells you this has happened before. Can't I even talk? And then notice this. When he turned when he turned to other people and asked the same questions, they gave him the same answers before. The same question being, what will the king do for the person that kills this Philistine? 
what's the reward going to be? And they gave him the same one. Oh, you're going to get to marry his daughter. You're going to have riches and money. And your family's not going to have to pay taxes, right? Like, whoa, like that's a big deal. And notice this, David is very interested in the reward. I mean, that's what he's asked this now several times. Not only that, but scriptures recorded this conversation. We know almost nothing else about what goes on this day, but we know this conversation takes place three times that he finds out what's the reward. He's interested in a wife. He's interested in money, and he's interested in the fame that could come from defeating this giant enemy of theirs. But here's what I think is so fascinating about this, and I really think it's important to understand. As we talk about David as the man after God's own heart, we often don't know quite really honestly what that means. But we don't think it means this, generally speaking. And it's right, because this is David who is interested in these things because it's, he's a young man. He's a human being. These are the things that he wants in his life. These are the things that he hopes for in his life. And we all have these things that we hope and we want. We want to have a person that we're going to be able to spend with and know. We want to have money and things that we can buy and enjoy. We want to have the fame and the applause and the recognition that comes from some great achievement, right? These are as base of human nature as we can get. But notice this doesn't disqualify David from being a man after God's own heart. The fact that he's interested in the reward of what might come doesn't disqualify him. It doesn't change the fact that he still is a man after God's own heart. I think sometimes when we think of that term, we spiritualize it. We think this is only going to apply to maybe like Billy Graham. Maybe that was Mother Teresa. Maybe there's a monk somewhere in a monastery who only wears a brown robe and has given up all enjoyment in this life, and he only eats really bland food, and he doesn't want to own anything, and he's just kind of isolated for God. And that sort of is a man after God's own heart. And I think it's very important for us to see in this moment, in this picture, None of these things disqualify David from being the man after God's own heart. Now, these interests and pursuit of these things is not going to lead him to good places. Don't get me wrong. These things are going to come with consequences. His pursuit of these things is going to be painful and damaging sometimes. Misprioritizing these things in his life is going to have some, well, unintended consequences for sure. They're not necessarily going to all be handled well and good. But they don't disqualify him. They don't change the fact that there is something in David that makes him the man after God's own heart. And that's important because we can see ourselves in these things quite often a lot of the time. There's things in life we just want that we would like to enjoy, that we would like to have. And we have to keep those things in right priority and the right check with God. But having them there as a want, as a wish, as a desire, does not disqualify us from being the person that God wants us to be. Well, David keeps this line of conversation going. And after 40 days of nobody standing up to Goliath, these guys take him serious enough that they say, hey, let's take him to Saul. And they bring him to Saul. And David says to Saul, don't let anybody be discouraged. I, your servant, will go and fight this Philistine. Now, you've got to understand, David's a kid in their eyes. These are soldiers, and Saul's been king now for decades. And this guy's a youth. In fact, Saul says this, you can't go out against this Philistine to fight him. You're only a boy. Goliath has been a warrior since he was a young man. I mean, to the eyes of these people looking on the outside, here's this little guy, David. I mean, who knows? He could be in the midst of puberty right here, and his voice could be cracking. And he says, don't anybody worry. I mean, how embarrassing would that be? But that could be exactly what's going on. I mean, he doesn't have a beard. He's not very tall yet. You know, he's, he's still the guy that takes care of all the sheep. And yet here he is saying, I'm, I'm willing to go fight the giant, the guy covered in armor. The guy doesn't appear to have any weaknesses. I'm ready to step out into that. David says to Saul, I, your servant, have been keeping my father's sheep. 
And when a lion or a bear came and took a sheep from the flock, I would chase it. I would attack it and save the sheep from its mouth. When it attacked me, I caught it by its fur and hid it and killed it. I, your servant, have killed both a lion and a bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like them because he has spoken against the armies of the living God. David's saying, this is something that I can do. And here's where I've seen this happen before. I've fought a lion. I fought a bear. That might, might be scarier, or at least as scary as fighting a guy who's armed to the teeth. But look what he says next. He says, the Lord who saved me from a lion and a bear will save me from this Philistine. You know, he doesn't go into any kind of conversation about rewards here. He knows what this is really all about. He says, look, here's what God has already done in my life. Here's what he's already saved me from. Here's what he empowered me to do. Here's what he's going to do again. And this is what turns Saul's mind to say, okay, well, go and may the Lord be with you. Right? Go and do this. And I love this, that David is saying to Saul, look, I fought a lion and a bear and I fought them. Physically me, it was my body on the line. I was there, my work, my effort, but it was God who saved me. Because I can look at myself and know I shouldn't be able to beat a bear. I shouldn't be able to kill a lion. I mean, I got a staff. I got a, I got a sling. Those aren't great tools for killing a single bear or a single lion. It was God who was at work in my life. It's God's anointing that's on my life. It was God who gave me the power and the strength to actually accomplish it. It was God working in me. I'm not going to take credit for it. I know that it was God who was at work. And it's just cool that David has this clarity, right? This clarity, and with that clarity, this incredible confidence, right? He's looking at a giant, this nine-foot-tall giant, going like, now God can help me take care of that too. God can help me take this down. And he's got clarity, and he's got confidence, but he also has the humility to know it's not me. This is only going to happen because this giant is standing here insulting not just this army but this army that represents God his nation his people and David's hope is in God's help not his own capabilities that's where he's placed it that's where he's saying you know what I I know that I'm nothing spectacular to look at I know that my abilities and capabilities are not going to be sufficient to take this guy down I'm not even hoping or trusting in what I can do my hope is in God and his promises, which were right for that time and that day and that moment. Because David remembers what God has done before. And that's so key is to understand this all began while David was keeping sheep. When nothing had changed in his life, he'd been anointed and went right back out to the sheep. But then one day that bear attacks, one day that a lion attacks. And all of a sudden David knows within himself, oh no, that's not going to happen. And God works in his life. And God saves him in that moment. And he allows him to kill and take care of that bear and that lion. I mean, that is crazy, but it has taught David where his hope really lies. And this is so important for us to understand that that we place our hope in what we depend on or who we depend on, right? That matters tremendously. In fact, that's what our actions show. That's what our choices show. It's what are we really placing and depending on? And, And for many of us, there's a lot of things we can depend on. Right, that can just be a bank account. That can just be a job. That can be our skill set and our capabilities. It can be people in our lives. It can be parents. It can be siblings. It can be a spouse. It can be a boss. It can be a close friend. And none of those things are bad things in and of themselves. But the reality is also this, that the degree that we hope is the degree of our disappointment if it fails or if that person fails us. And that's why we go through times of great disappointment often. Somebody fails us that we had put a lot of hope 
a lot of trust in, a lot of reliance upon. Some system failed us. Our, our nation failed us. A community failed us. Right? Family members failed us. Whatever it might be, but if you've gone through times of great disappointment, it's because somebody you or someone you had hoped in failed. And we had this example in David here who was stepping up and saying, my hope isn't in the king, who's the, who's the next tallest guy who should be out there fighting. And my hope's not in the rest of this army even. Our hope isn't going to be in strength of arms or ability. Our hope is in God himself because God is with me. God is near me. God is a part of my life. God is directing me because I want my life to be what God wants my life to be. I mean, I want some other stuff. I'm hoping there's some reward that comes out of all this. But ultimately, I want to stand on the side that God's standing on. And that is where David firmly plants his hope to where he can look at this huge giant and say to himself, okay, that's what God's put in front of me. That's the challenge in front of me. That's the challenge that I'm going to step into. That's the challenge I'm going to trust him for next. And David goes out there and says on his way there, he stops by and he picks up some rocks because he's got a sling, which is just a piece of leather with kind of a wider patch at the end. And you take it, put the rock at the bottom and you just, you, you do that whole swinging over your head and they can get these things whipping along. And you should probably know too, this isn't at all like a slingshot like you might've had when you were a kid. For one, they shoot way bigger rocks. They shoot rocks that are closer to like this size, although they're actually even like more like a baseball to a softball size rock. And they used them in the military all the time back then. They would have sometimes whole companies of guys that were slingers and would throw these rocks. You can read about them actually in the book of Judges, but also in history. Um, because you get hit by a rock the side in the head, right? That's going to do a significant amount of damage, right? You're going to give somebody a concussion. You hit them somewhere else, you might break a bone, right? You're going to make their arm go dead. And whatever it might be, you can do a significant amount of damage. So he's not got like a kid's toy. He's got a legitimate military weapon when he goes out there. And he stops by this little brook, and he picks up five rocks, sticks them in his pouch. He's basically got five bullets for his gun <laughs> that he's going to fling and throw at this giant Goliath, right? That's a huge, huge deal. So he stops, picks us up, runs out to where Goliath comes out. Goliath, the champion, walks out. He's making his big speech. Here comes David saying, hey, great news. I'm coming out here to fight you. And Goliath has got to be confused as I'll get out. He sees this kid come out to fight him. I mean, for 40 days, this whole army has been terrified of him. All of these men on this other side, they've been afraid. And there are, some of them are veterans in warfare. He knows it. Yet no one's come out to challenge. And all of a sudden, this kid comes out. This young youth comes out with no armor, with no weapons that he can recognize. He's got a stick in one hand and a leather sling in the other. And he's just like, he's covered in armor. He, it's blowing his mind. And he insults David. He insults and tells him, I'm going to kill you, kid. And I'm going to leave your body here in this valley and the birds are going to come and eat your flesh. And David replies really in a lot the same way and says, no, no, I'm going to kill you. But he says it this way. He says, David said to him, you come to me using a sword and two spears, but I come to you in the name of the Lord, all powerful, the God of the armies of Israel. You have spoken against him. David says, like, it's great that you came out here with all these awesome weapons. You've got this, you know, giant spear, that you've got the sword, that you've got this guy carrying your shield for you, that you're decked out in armor. Those are great weapons. They're really cool. But I'm not coming with, against you with just weapons. I'm coming against you with God himself at my back. It's his promise I'm living out. It's, it's in his name that I'm coming. And David makes it very clear. I didn't come here to fight you weapon to weapon. I came here to fight you in the very name of God. And he takes that sling puts that rock in it, starts whipping that thing around, throws it, and he makes like this incredible shot, the money shot. I mean, the only place on his body that's vulnerable, right? 
right in the forehead. It's the one in a million miracle, bam, God is like directing this rock, hits Goliath right in the head. I mean, it's, just, it's come at him just like that. Boom, takes him, giant all the way down. David runs up, sees that he's down, doesn't have any other weapons, so he takes Goliath's sword and he chops off Goliath's head with it. Now, that is not a pretty picture, especially if Goliath's heart was still beating. Just saying, really gross stuff, hard for us to wrap our heads around it. But what happens next is Israel, the army, sees that Goliath has just gone down and David has killed him. All of a sudden, their war cry goes crazy ballistic, and they just lose their minds, and they start attacking and charging the Philistines. And they can't believe their champion that they never thought could lose has gone down by a boy, by a kid. Talk about a sudden loss of confidence they see the army come at them. They turn tail and run, and God breaks this whole stalemate and defeats Philistine that, the Philistines that day. And the army goes about killing them all the way back to their home. Meanwhile, Saul is watching David go out to this battle to fight this giant. And he turns to his general's name is Abner, and he just says, who is this kid? He prays it, whose son is this? Like, is there some mighty champion of a man around here who raised this kid to fight giants that I don't know about? I mean, what is going on? And, and this guy has played, in his, played guitar before him before. Right? He's the local musician kind of a thing. He's like, how is this possible? But it's awesome. It's after this battle, it says that, that Abner goes and gets David and brings him back in. And here's the way it says it. David came back from killing Goliath. Abner brought him to Saul. David was still holding Goliath's head. Now, that's just a little detail that they left out of Sunday school when I was a kid. So I like to bring it up. Here's David. The youth, the pipsqueak, who was carrying a giant's head, and he carries it into Saul's tent. If his brother Eliab had been there, he would probably say that David had two giant heads with him, one on his shoulders, one in his fist, right? He's, he is carrying the trophy of his victory. And I think there's a sense of which David is now thinking, like, I have to go collect that reward but I'm going to definitely want to have proof. I don't want anybody else claiming like, oh no, it was really me. He's coming back with the head. He brings it straight to Saul. Later we see he carries the head all the way to Jerusalem. And I can't come up with a good reason why he would do that other than just showing it off. Like, yeah, remember this guy? Yeah, I'm the guy that killed him. It is this kind of funny, kind of crazy, hard even to imagine that David is coming back to Saul with this giant head in his hand because David is also celebrating the victory that nobody thought was possible. And yes, it is totally God's victory. And David knows that, but it's kind of awesome because it's also David's victory too. And that's what's awesome when David follows after God, when he's placed his hope and his trust in him, the stories of his life are laced with stories of what God has done in his life. First, it was God helped me kill a bear. God helped me kill a lion. Now, God helped me kill the giant that was terrorizing our land. And in this moment, David becomes the most famous person in the nation of Israel. He does. Everybody's going to hear about this. Everybody's going to hear the story about the giant killer who is just a boy, just a lad. But it's awesome because, again, it's the underdog. It's David, the unlikely hero. It's David, the boy who won the battle, not because he was a trained soldier or because he was expected to, but because he went forward in hope and in faith in his God. In fact, it's just one of the great truths for us is that God doesn't need great people to accomplish great things. He never has. 
he never has at all. In fact, it's amazing when you look through the stories of, of who has God used throughout the Old and New Testament, he's always talking to people who don't feel like they're adequate. There's some reason why God can't use them. Abraham is like, God, it's great that you want to make me into a nation, but I don't have any kids, and my wife can't have kids. It's kind of a problem. Moses, see, I'm going to use you to deliver my people out of Egypt. Moses like, eh, I don't really talk to crowds well. I don't do public speaking well. I'm not quick on my feet verbally. I don't think it's a good idea. Jeremiah's like, I'm way too young. I'm just a kid myself. I don't think this is a good plan. It never stops God from using people who are just willing to follow him. In fact, God isn't looking for people who are great in the eyes of anybody else and certainly not great in their own eyes. God is simply looking for people who can say this statement and pray this statement, God, my hope is in you. See, that's the heart that God is looking for. That's the heart that David continually comes back to have. Despite maybe the moments where he gets distracted by you know, women and money and fame and fortune and all those other things that, yeah, he still wants to have in his life, when, it, when push comes to shove, David always comes back to God. My hope is in you. God, I trust in you. My hope is in you. As you read through so the Psalms that are written by David, you see him come back again and again and again. And yes, there's many victories for David where he defeats Goliath or he defeats an enemy or they win a war or a battle. But there's a lot of dark days ahead of David, days where he'll be hiding in caves, where he'll be an outlaw. It doesn't matter which scenario he's in. He always comes back to the same place. His trust, his hope is in God. It's not in the people around him. It's not in the nation itself. It's not in the strength of arms or armies. It's not even in himself that he has put his hope. He's put his hope upon God. And this is the invitation of God for all of us. In fact, this is, this is what God wants for us each and every day to start our day. And, and with the challenges, with the giants, if you will, with those voices that speak shame and discouragement to us, to speak back to them with the very words of God, my hope isn't in what I can do, in what I'm good enough for. My hope is in what you can do and what you want to do, what you made me for, the purpose that you created my life for today. This is the coolest part of the story of David and Goliath, is that this rings true for us just as much as him, that this is the story for each follower of God that we get to choose who we put our trust in every day, that we get to choose who we put our hope in every day, and we serve the same God that David served, and he's just as faithful, he's just as reliable, and he's just as powerful. And he's encouraging and he's wanting us to follow and trust him. But it doesn't start always with the great victories. Just like David in this story, it starts with where we're at. It starts with us going back to, to being shepherds. It starts with us going back to work, going back to our job, going right back to our families, our friends, our relationship. It starts with a small little challenge of, will I be faithful to God here? Can I follow God here? Can I put my hope in God here as I begin to plug away at this, as I begin to learn about him, as I begin to read his, his word, as I begin to pray, as I begin to maybe share what God is doing in my life. And, and even if people are, are think it's a dumb idea or our, my family's like, no, we don't do that. We're not that kind of believer. We're not that kind of faith. We're not that kind of religion, right? Or if our, our boss or our coworkers or our friends to think like, oh, no, you're gonna become one of those church people or God people or or whatever kind of pushback we begin to feel or find in our life, the victories begin when we say, God, you're going to be my hope and not them. You're the one who's going to lead my life and not them. It's your purpose that I want to pursue and not them. And I'm going to learn how to be the best shepherd, the best plumber, the best accountant, the best police officer, the best 
nurse, the best whatever God has called you to be as a follower of Jesus in that place. But each day, each time, each meeting, each moment as a mom, as a dad, working with our kids and trying to figure out how do we do this life and face the challenges and the responsibilities that continue to weigh down on top of us, it just all comes down to saying, God, my hope is in you. My hope is in you for my children. My hope is in you for me to succeed. My hope is in you for this business. My hope is in you for this venture. My hope is in you for your wisdom to win out here. My hope is in you. So as we close right now, let's let that be our prayer. What would that change this week? What this week do you need to put your hope and shift your hope to being upon God's shoulders and not upon yours or upon somebody else's or upon something else's success, some other piece of the future that you can't control that you can't even fully comprehend maybe. Shifting and placing our hope and who we're relying on upon God himself. As we close, as we pray, think about specifically what that is for you. Where do you need hope? Where have you been facing disappointment? Where have you been experiencing discouragement? Because at that point, at that place of resistance, at that place of weight and stress and anxiety, that is the place where we need to say, what am I hoping on? and placing my hope on and to take that hope and place it in God instead. Let's seek him. Father, Father, we thank you that we can put our hope on you. We thank you that you are the same God that we just read about, that you led David, that you gave him hope, that you gave him confidence, that you gave him clarity, and you always loved his humility. Help us to realize and to remember the stories of how you have worked in our lives. Open our eyes to see your faithful presence, your faithful hand. God, open our eyes to see the steps that you put in front of us and that we would trust you and rely upon you, not upon ourselves, not upon our own abilities, not upon our, our own wheels and deals, not upon our own relationships that we, that we love. But God, first and foremost, we would place our life and the hope of our life in your very powerful, your very great, your very loving hands. And we pray this all in your great name, Jesus. Amen.